I want to begin with a question this morning, and the question is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, that may seem like a basic Sunday school sort of question. Who in the world is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus taught. He did miracles. He walked on water. He fed the 5,000. He raised the dead to life. And Jesus suffered. He died on the cross in our place. He rose from the dead from the tomb. But how we answer that question, who is Jesus, is incredibly important and is, in fact, one of the most fundamental questions we could ever ask. Who is Jesus? For over 2,000 years now, Jesus has been regarded by lots of people as a good teacher or a religious sage or as a miracle worker, but do those Descriptions really get at the fullness of who Jesus actually is. Sure, Jesus was a teacher and a preacher. His lessons and sermons were both perfect and they were revealing. They revealed reality as it truly is. And sure, Jesus is wise. The counsel that Jesus gave was without error, was always life-changing. And sure, Jesus did some extraordinary miracles, lots of them, in fact. But is there something more? Is the sum of Jesus' life simply that he was a good teacher and a wise counselor and a miracle worker, or is there something more fundamental about Jesus, something that affects our very own salvation? And I'm going to argue this morning that the answer is yes. There is something more fundamental about Jesus than just the miracles that he did or the teaching that he proclaimed or the counsel that he provided. So if you have not already taken Nathan's excellent advice and open your Bible to Luke chapter 11, I'm going to give you a second chance right now. Grab your Bible, open with us to Luke chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, We're going to be on page 870. And by now, as you know, Jesus is well into his earthly ministry. He's taught some great sermons. He's provided wise counsel. He's performed some incredible miracles. But now, in our text this morning, Jesus is going to kind of zoom in a little bit and narrow the focus down that we might see the reason for Jesus's Ministry. He's going to take us, as it were, behind the curtain just a little bit and show us the reason that he performed miracles, the reason that he taught as he taught. In fact, Jesus is going to challenge, as we will see, his audience then and us today. He's going to challenge especially those of us who think of Jesus only in terms of the things he does and not primarily about who he is. So if I were to put that another way, what we're going to see in our text this morning is that Jesus pushes back on us if our definition about Jesus simply is the things that he did. Well, he, he did a miracle. He did lots of miracles. Or he provided great teaching. Or he was really wise. He was kind of the Christian, you know, theological Yoda of the day, right? Well, Jesus is going to push back on that a bit. 
and indeed show us that there is something more fundamental about Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 29. The word of the Lord says, when the, wor- when the crowds were increasing, he, Jesus, began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. First thing I want to point out in the text, and this is maybe by by way of passing, but I think this connects to the main theme this morning, and that is that Jesus really needed a public relations team. In fact, if you just look at verse 29, the crowds are increasing, which we would think this is really good news. In fact, if you are Jesus' disciple, you're thinking this is exactly what we want. We know of Jesus' teaching. We know a bit about who he actually is. And now the crowds are coming out to hear Jesus teach and preach and be exposed to the truth of his message, right? This should be mission accomplished. And yet what does Jesus do? Even as he's beginning to get noticed, he's beginning to become an influencer. Then Jesus says to them in verse 29, this generation is an evil generation. Now, if Jesus' purpose was to attract a crowd, this is not what he would have said. In fact, if Jesus had a public relations team, and I said that earlier tongue-in-cheek, we know that Jesus needed no public relations team, but this would be a nightmare if you are Jesus' publicist, right? Like, Jesus, don't say this. The crowds are just starting to come out. They're just starting to listen to you. They're just starting to pay attention to you. Your influence is growing. Don't, don't, Don't open up the hard teaching yet. But we know from John chapter 6 that Jesus' purpose was not, in fact, to attract a large crowd, but was rather to rescue all that the Father had given to him. And so Jesus turns to the crowd and says, this generation is an evil generation. Why? Because it seeks for a sign. Now, is it wrong to seek for a sign from Jesus? Maybe perhaps it's okay to want a sign as long as we don't seek for a sign. What does Jesus mean precisely when he says, this is an evil generation because it seeks for a sign? Well, this gets to the heart of where we are going this morning, the heart of Jesus' message here in verses 29 through 36. We're going to come back to this several times, but I just want to give you kind of the main thesis that will guide the rest of our time together. And it's this, our need is not for more evidence. Our need is for eyes to see and for ears to hear. Jesus is going to challenge the people of his time and our time by revealing that our greatest need isn't for more signs. 
Rather, our greatest need is for eyes to see and for ears to hear so that we might look through the signs and therefore might see what the signs are meant to communicate. Notice again where Jesus begins. This is an evil generation. Why? Because it seeks for a sign. And I don't think Jesus is saying here that all signs are evil. I don't think that he's saying that we shouldn't look for signs for Jesus' truthfulness. And we know that because Jesus here in verse 29 gives them a sign. And because throughout Jesus' ministry, he will give them lots of different kinds of signs. In fact, you might remember after Jesus was raised from the dead, he gathers together with his disciples and in the group, in the mix, is one gentleman who unfortunately has been known for the last 2,000 years as Doubting Thomas. Even though Thomas actually ends up believing, right? We should call him Believing Thomas, but the poor guy has the moniker Doubting Thomas and Jesus comes to him and says, I want you to see the nail scars in my hands. I want you to see the nail scars in my feet. Do not doubt, but believe. So even Jesus uses signs as evidence for his identity. So Jesus is not anti-signs. Rather, what Jesus is confronting is an unending desire for signs and wonders that never result in true faith. The people that Jesus is directing these warnings to are the very people who see Jesus as nothing other than a carnival sideshow. They're amused for a little while, interested for a little while. But once the amusement wears off, they seek the next sign, the next miracle, the next entertaining act. It's the same group that Jesus has just confronted in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 and 16. Remember in Luke eleven fourteen, 14, Jesus cast the demon, uh, the mute demon out of the man and the The people are astonished. And then in verse 16, we read that there is a a segment of the people who are there who are still not impressed. They still don't actually believe in Jesus, but they seek another sign. They're never satisfied with the sign that they have. It's also important that we acknowledge that the reason Jesus challenges the crowd here in our text this morning is not because he's tired of this crowd. Jesus is not like a, a weary parent at the end of a long day who's tired of asking, answering the question why 50,000 times and he's just tired of a crowd that always wants more signs, always wants more signs and he's exasperated and so he says, you're an evil generation, I'm tired of dealing with you. That's not what motivates Jesus. No, Jesus challenges the crowd because their attitude towards him will only lead them to hell. He knows that their insatiable appetite for wanting more signs and more signs and more signs, but never truly trusting in his identity, never truly understanding why he's giving them the signs will only lead them to hell. As Tom Schreiner writes, the crowds are increasing, but their hearts are not in the right place. This is going to become clearer when we look at verses 33 through 36, but it's important to see that what's at stake in Jesus' teaching here isn't just a need for entertainment. Jesus isn't addressing the fact that this is a group of people who are so addicted to their entertainment that they can't be bored for a while, or they can't just sit for a while, or they, they always you know, want something greater or more spectacular. 
What's at stake is whether or not they and we truly trust in Jesus or not. And that's the point. And so to drive home this point, Jesus then uses two different illustrations, two examples. First, Jonah, and then the queen of the south. Let's begin looking at Jonah first. Verse 30, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, you might be familiar with Jonah as the guy who was swallowed by the big fish. If you're familiar with veggie tales at all, you've probably seen the Jonah and the big fish, and you got a worm running around talking in a Middle Eastern accent, and it's really entertaining. Well, that's not the most important thing about Jonah. In fact, the most important thing about Jonah is not actually that he was swallowed by a big fish. The most important thing about Jonah is that he was called by God to be a prophet, to declare the message of God, the word of God, to a people far from God. And in that way, he was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And so God comes to Jonah with a message. I want you to go and I want you to proclaim my judgment against a nation that is your enemy. Warn them that I am going to destroy them, God tells Jonah. But Jonah, knowing God to be gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and perhaps fearing that his enemies would actually listen to the message and repent and trust in God, Jonah goes in the opposite direction and he boards a ship. It's while he's at sea that God provides a storm. Sailors are scared to death, they're wondering what's going on, and Jonah all of a sudden gets really bold and says, it's my fault, I'm running from God, that's the reason the storm has come upon you. Throw me into the sea, and the storm will end. And after the sailors for a time try even harder to fight against the storm, they throw Jonah into the sea. And God provides a fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days where he repents and turns back to God. God commands the fish to spit Jonah out on dry land and then God's word comes to Jonah a second time to go to Nineveh and to preach God's judgment against the people of Nineveh. Just listen to how Jonah chapter three records what happens next. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself in sackcloth and ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles 
Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites. He was a sign that God used to call the people to repentance. And just think of the similarities. Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days, and Jesus would be dead for three days in the grave. Jonah was brought back to life, so to speak, and Jesus would literally be raised from the dead. Jonah preached, alerting people of God's judgment, and Jesus, too, preached and taught and called people to repent. And sadly, even after Jesus rose from the dead, the vast majority of the people would not believe in him. And so Jesus is really direct here in verse 32 when he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. So the people of Nineveh are gonna rise at the judgment. They're going to condemn this generation, Jesus says. Why? For, or because, they repented, the Ninevites, at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, that was not enough. Jesus said, look at the Ninevites. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. An imperfect individual who first ran from God. In fact, we don't have any indication, even in Jonah's message, that he even declared the possibility of reconciliation with God. Like he, it seems, was all too eager to declare judgment against the Ninevites. 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed, right? We don't hear any message of turn. Now maybe there was, we just don't have that recorded, but something greater than Jonah is here. And yet, Jesus is communicating, you fail to believe, you fail to see, you fail to understand. This is similar to something Jesus will say later in Luke chapter 16. So if you keep your Bible in Luke 11, I want, you, I want to show you in Luke 16. You've probably read this before, but I want to tie this in with our text. And since we may not get to Luke 16 for four or five more years. Luke 16 verse 19 Jesus speaking says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. 
But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they come also into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, shorthand for scripture there, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Do you see the similarities? They won't believe my word. And if they won't believe my word, they won't believe Holy Scripture, then they won't believe even if someone should rise from the dead. And so the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment against the evil generation and condemn it. For the Ninevites repented with so much less to go on. And Jesus makes this same point again here in Luke, back in Luke 11 in our text. Now using the example not of Jonah but the queen of the south. Look at verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. All the way back in 1 Kings chapter 10, we learn about the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, who all the way in Africa hears of the riches and the wisdom of Solomon the king of Israel, and so she goes and she makes the long journey across the desert at great expense, at great peril with her whole procession, and she travels just to come and hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Jesus' point, once again, is this. The queen of the south was willing to travel such a long way at such great trouble just to hear and take to heart the wisdom of Solomon. And yet something greater than Solomon is here. There is a wisdom that you now have access to, Jesus is saying, that is greater than the queen of the south had access to. And what's implied in Jesus' condemnation of them is that they refuse to actually listen. To his wisdom. They refuse to actually embrace who he is. It's also important to see that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is a goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It's, it's, a, it's a divine title. We might hear today Son of Man and think that that refers to Jesus' humanity. It actually refers to Jesus' divinity. And Jesus is saying, God in the flesh is here. And yet you are not willing to truly listen and to take heart to what I say. And so one day, the queen of the south will rise up against you because she sacrificed to hear a wise man. How much more for you who can actually hear from God? 
R.C. Sproul put it like this, in both cases, the argument is from the lesser to the greater. The Gentiles responded positively to Solomon and to Jonah, but this generation of Israelites refuses to respond to something greater than Solomon and Jonah, the Son of God. Or to apply this closer to home, Philip Ryken writes, in our unbelief, we generally assume that the problem lies somewhere outside of us. Yes, I am willing to believe in God, people say, if only he will show me a sign. But the examples that Jesus gave prove that this is not the real problem. The sign is there. The problem is that we do not believe it. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, or maybe you have said or even thought to yourself, well, I would only believe if, if I had a sign, if it was more obvious, if God made it more plain, if it was clearer. But according to the truth of Scripture, and remember, Scripture is our guide. Scripture is a a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, so it reveals the way things truly are. And according to Scripture, that's not the real reason men and women don't believe. It's not for a lack of signs. In fact, signs have never produced disciples very well. Pastor Nick Rogers has been known to say from time to time that a miracle is like a really good meal. It may satisfy you for a while, but you will grow hungry again. So what's the answer? The answer is to see. The answer is to see through the miracle, and to see through the sign to that which the signs and miracles point. Signs and miracles are like windows. Unless unless you're a window-inciting salesperson, you probably don't notice windows. Like you're driving down the street. Honey, look at that window. That's amazing. Look at the car window. It's just exquisite. We should really look into saving for a window like that. You don't do that. Why? Because windows are not made to be looked at. They're made to be looked through. And the signs and the miracles that Jesus gave and performed are meant to be seen through, not just looked at. They have one job. They are to reveal with clarity that which lies behind. And Jesus' miracles and signs point to who Jesus truly is. They reveal the light of the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that we might actually see who Jesus is, which is the fundamental thing that so many in the crowd and so many in Jesus' generation and so many in our generation fail to do. We want to see a sign from Jesus. We want a magic trick, a miracle, a sideshow. We want to be entertained just as they wanted to be entertained, but then we stop there. And so many in Jesus' day, they'd pull up camp chairs and get out the popcorn. Like, Jesus, show us another sign. Show us something else that's great. Like, I'm going to bring my friends tomorrow. Or I brought my friends today because of what you did yesterday. And I told them how great your miracles were and how awesome you could, you know, entertain the crowd. And Jesus is saying, you are a wicked generation because you fail to see through the signs and the miracles to that which they point, which is me. Son of God. Remember, Luke's purpose in writing all of this is that we may have certainty in what we have been taught. 
that we may have certainty that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit leads Luke to record these occurrences in Jesus' life in such a way that we may have certainty. Jesus is wanting his signs and his miracles to open the eyes of the blind. The signs and the miracles of Jesus are meant that we would see through them, that see Jesus for who he truly is. We would see the light that they reveal. John would write in John chapter 1 that the true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I think R.C. Sproul summarizes this helpfully when he wrote, The people seeking a sign do not need more light, but better receptiveness to the light they already had. What God is doing in Jesus is plain enough. In fact, in John chapter 3, we see that Jesus is the light who has come into the world to bring light and to cast out darkness. But without Christ, we all love the darkness. And we hate the light because our deeds are evil. Therefore, what we truly need is not more light. What we truly need is to turn from the darkness of unbelief to the light of Jesus Christ. And this is important because in the end, unbelief is primarily not an intellectual problem. It's not because there's not enough evidence or that God has not made himself clear. The problem is a moral problem. We don't want to believe because we know that if we acknowledge God for who he is, we acknowledge his son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God in the flesh, who suffered and died on the cross for the sin of all who believe and rose from the dead, and we turn and trust in him by faith through grace, we know we know that there's an accountability there, that that should then impact what we do and don't do and think and don't think and say and don't say and what we look at and don't look at. And in our rebelliousness, in the hardness of our heart apart from Christ, we don't want a king. We want to be king. We don't want a God on the throne. We want to be on the throne. Which is why our fundamental problem here is not an intellectual problem, it's a moral problem. And yet the solution is so simple and so glorious. Look at verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is a lamp for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part in dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Now this 
imagery of a lamp on a stand and not under a basket is something Jesus refers to at different points in his teaching and ministry. And, and it could be a bit confusing because there are times when the lamp refers to uh, the, the light of Jesus Christ within us, his people. And there are times when the lamp refers to the teaching of Jesus. And I think the lamp here in this context is referring to, or the light in this context, is actually referring to the signs and the miracles of Jesus. Jesus' point here is that these signs are public. They're not done in secret. They're meant to be seen. They're meant to be that which helps to open the eyes of those who see so that we would see through the miracle and see through the sign to the light that's revealed behind. Again, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 John writes and says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, which is the same imagery of light that Paul uses in Acts 26 when he records the the word that he had from the Lord about his ministry, when the Lord tells Paul that I'm sending you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Friends, Jesus is all the sign that we need. And he's saying, when you see me, when you look at the signs, Verse 33, that are shining so brightly, and you see through the sign to see me, then your whole body is full of light. Meaning there's a, there's a fundamental change in your identity. There's a fundamental change in your outlook. There's a fundamental change in your destiny. You are transformed by beholding who I truly am and believing. And the signs are meant to point to that. The miracles are meant to point to that. Then he issues this warning in verse 35, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. I believe he's referring to those that he's condemned in verse 29, this evil generation. He says, you seek for a sign. You see the signs, you think that it's light, but it's actually darkness because you don't look through the sign. You just look at the sign. You don't rightly acknowledge what the sign is meant to communicate and reveal. Friends, Jesus is all the sign that we need. And today we have his word. We have Holy Scripture. We have his written message and truth and we can read it and drink it in and we can read about his miracles and his signs and we can look through them to see the glory of Jesus Christ, the one to whom the signs point. So listen, what we ultimately and most fundamentally need is not another sign, but rather what we need is the spiritual ability to see the sign that God has already given, Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners and raised from the dead. And the only way that we can see Jesus is by having the Holy Spirit come and open our eyes. The Spirit's work is to reveal the light of Jesus Christ to the eyes of faith so that we may see the glory of God and may turn to him. So let's pray that the Holy Spirit would open blind eyes. In fact, that's what I've been praying this morning, all morning, first service. Prayed it before first service. Prayed it before this service. 
Lord, would you be pleased through the singing of your word and the praying of your word and the reading of your word and the proclamation of your word, would you be pleased to open blind eyes through the power of your Holy Spirit to see through the signs, to see through the wonders, to see through the miracles, and to see the one to whom all things point. That even this morning, some of you who walked in here and are not trusting in Jesus Christ by faith, your eyes would be open to see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross in the place of all who believe and was raised again from the dead three days later and now rules and reigns and will one day return to establish his kingdom and to rule over his people. And all who turn and trust by faith in him are grafted into that family, are forgiven of our sins, are given a new identity. Now walk in the light as he is in the light and have fellowship with those who are in the light. Because one day it will be too late. As Luke chapter 16 so vividly showed us earlier this morning. I'll be the first to confess that I don't pray this nearly enough. We have unsafe family members, unsafe neighbors, unsafe friends. I don't believe I have any unsafe coworkers, but. I don't pray this nearly enough. I don't feel the weight of that nearly enough. God, would you, through your Holy Spirit, open blind eyes today. Would you use me as your ambassador to liberally distribute the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, to people? And then you, through your Holy Spirit, would you sink that seed down deep into people's hearts that it may, it may take root and bear fruit that they would see, that their eyes would be open, that they would see their sin and they would see your glory and they would see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moms and dads, how often do you pray this for your children? God, would you open their eyes that through story after story at the dinner table as we're working through the Jesus Storybook Bible or reading through a passage of scripture, as we're praying together, as we're talking together, as we're asking questions, that along the way, it would become more than just stories. Along the way, it would become more than just signs. But at some point in time, you, through your Holy Spirit, would open their blind eyes, that they would turn and trust in you. And that God would use us in meager ways to accomplish that work. It is a a glorious work that the Lord does that through no merit of our own, he chooses to save. So maybe you're here this morning and you are a believer and you're thinking, well, I, I already trust in Jesus Christ. Wonderful. My prayer is that through this text of scripture, through this exposition this morning, through our time of worship this morning, you would be reminded once again that you are saved 
by grace through faith through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it is not a result of work so that no one may boast, that even this text this morning might lead us to greater joy in the Lord and greater worship of him and greater life doxology, that we would praise him all the more as we are reminded of his glorious work, that we walk in the light, not because we were smart enough to find the light on our own or that we somehow sought out the light or we somehow were intellectual enough to put the pieces together, but only because by grace God has revealed his son to us through the power of his Holy Spirit and given us the grace to change, given us the grace to turn, to trust in him, and that we would be filled with a burden and a and a desire and a passion and a longing to see others understand that same truth, to trust in Jesus as well. One more quote from Riken, and I'll close with this, commenting on verse 36 about the glorious good news and the, the wonder of having our lives transformed by the light of Jesus Christ. Riken writes, this is God's glorious promise When the Spirit opens our eyes to see the full brightness of his salvation, the light of Jesus will illuminate the dark corners of our lives until the dawn breaks on the eternal day. The dark shadows are chased away and all is light. Friends, that is what we look forward to. And so our worshiping, our gathering together, our reading and studying the word of the Lord and looking at the the signs and the miracles of the Lord and seeking to look through them and see the glory and the light of Jesus Christ is only preparing our eyes, right? It's only helping our eyes to adjust to that day when Jesus gloriously returns and our faith is made sight and we see him as he is and all is light and we spend an eternity with him. May texts like this prepare our hearts all the more for that glorious day. Let's pray together.